ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Angus Verley here. Coming up on the Country Hour today, you'll get the latest on that major dispute between Stevedoring Company DP World and its workers, and the impact that dispute is having on ag exports. Also, we'll head to Germany where thousands of tractors are blocking roads, highways and traffic as farmers protest proposed agricultural subsidy cuts. And more on the impact of flooding rains at the weekend. Get in touch, 0467 842 722, or give me a call on 1300 594 A shipping industry spokesperson is making dire predictions about worsening impacts of a major industrial dispute at the nation's key ports. Stevedore and company DP World and its stevedores have been locked in a dispute over pay and conditions for months, causing critical shipping backlogs and delays in the export of produce. Paul's ally, director of the Freight and Trade Alliance and secretary for the Australian Peak Shippers Association, says the dispute is going from bad to worse. The dispute began in October last year, um, uh, with the use of protected industrial action. So it began then and it was really um, taking the form of uh, stop work for periods of time, stop servicing perhaps road and rail for small windows, um, bans on overtime and the like. So initially the action wasn't too severe on the industry, but you know it's almost been like a death of a thousand cuts. It's just been so prolonged that the pain of the protected industrial action has just been building up over the weeks and months that's transpired. And we've got to the point now where I think last Thursday when I spoke to DP World, they had 51,000 containers stranded around the country at their four container ports in in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Fremantle. And um, the congestion that it's causing there is now having a whole lot of knock-on effects. We've got international uh, shipping vessels now that are making commercial decisions to bypass particular ports that are congested at any given time. And then the impacts then for importers are devastating. They don't get their their stock when they expect it. That's the import side of things. The exports um, have got a lot harder again. And just on that, we've got uh, all sorts of ag goods that are exported out of Australia, lots of perishables, the likes of table grapes to come out of Victoria's Sunraysia. What's happening with those products? Yeah, look, you, you raise a really good point. We're getting we're getting hammered by our members in the ag sector um, across the board. Um, so, in, and it's you know this just does not discriminate. It affects any movement of cargo in in sea freight containers. Um, so, you know, we've heard from um, fish meal exporters out of Tasmania being impacted. You know, they've got the situation now where. Um, they're relying on the Port of Melbourne to reach uh, international markets. As you said, the grape growers are really getting hit hard. This is going, you know, it's a peak time for them. Uh, they've got an opportunity to get to market. They're, they're facing the issues there at the port. Um, and it goes on. Riverina, we've, we're talking to wine exporters. You know, they've got 
lucrative markets to the US and other parts of the world where they can't can't reach market. Out of um, central New South Wales, you know, you've got your, your meat exporters up to Toowoomba, you've got your pulses, you've got your cotton shippers. Everyone is facing the issue. And our good friends in the West, we're talking to grain exporters out of there as well. The problem is severe and it's affecting all sectors of commerce. Paul, from my reading, it seems that there doesn't there doesn't appear to be any end in sight for this dis- dispute. Look, it's getting going from bad to worse, to be honest. So we had this week uh, was meant to be the great hope that we're going to have three days of um, negotiations, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and today, Thursday, um, to try and get a resolution. But the week started pretty badly with um, both DP World and the union making a whole lot of um, I don't know, volatile statements, I would call it, in in the media, Um, and DP World threatening that um, if they don't get a resolution now, that come tomorrow, Friday, that any worker that takes any form of protected industrial action will be docked a day's pay that they take that action. So that's starting to bring things to a head. I've read in other media overnight, and, and, and I assume it's true, um, that the the Maritime Union, their response has been to to counter that with threats of um, not servicing any vessel for, for up to 16 hours from the time that it births, and then also not servicing particular targeted shipping lines altogether. So really, if that's if that's true, then you know what will the response be from DP World? I think they may take a drastic action similar to what we saw in the late 1990s where they might do a lockout um, and um, and force the Fair Work Commission or the federal government to come in at the 11th hour to do some independent arbitration before before they actually lock out the workers altogether. And we haven't had a lockout like that since the 90s? We haven't. It was interesting. Um, uh, Spitzer, the tugboat operator, you may recall last year, they they had prolonged uh, protected industrial action, um, and they they did threaten the lockout, and which was a big call, but then it paid off for them because again at the eleventh hour the Fair Work Commission stepped in, arbitration uh, was put in place, and there was a resolution. Now, interestingly. The CEO of Spitzer at the time um, was a gentleman by the name of Nikolai Knowles, and Nikolai is now the current um, uh, Australian Vice President of uh, DP World. He moved across from Spitzer. So it wouldn't surprise me, and we we actually did an interview with Nikolai back on the 5th of uh, December, and I actually put the question to Nikolai, if if need be, would would he resort to a lockout strategy again? And he did not dismiss that as an option. So with the escalation of threats and escalation of protected industrial action, it may be where we're heading. So for farmers, producers, exporters listening to this, Paul, uh, concerned about exporting their products, it all sounds pretty negative. It does. Um, it's, it is extremely concerning. We're, we're hopeful that sanity will prevail and that we we need... The way I see it, we need independent arbitration. We need the Fair Work Commission to come in and actually sort this out um, because the parties are just at a stalemate and, and the, the, the actions that each party is taking is just escalating, which is, you know, which is all well and good for them, but it's the Australian economy, it's the farmers, it's the producers, the growers, uh, the manufacturers. They're all suffering. The, the picture gets... I hate to bring all the doom and gloom, but the picture gets even worse when you look ahead. 
So the enterprise agreements that are in place with the other stevedores around the country, um, they all take effect around the end of 2025 at the same time. One of the other things I understand that the union is looking to do with DP World is to shorten their uh, agreement period from three years to two years, which also would then align up with the other stevedores. So potentially, we have a picture down the track where all of the stevedores in the country, container stevedores, will be negotiating with the union at the same time. And we could basically shut the doors on Australia if things go really that bad. Now, I'm painting a worst case scenario, but I think it's worth um, our, our public, your listeners, our government officials to have a look at this and think about the broader implications. And is all of this coming off coming at a time when when shipping was finally starting to settle down after all of the disruptions that w- were caused during COVID? Yeah, look, it was. You know, COVID was a very challenging period, as we know. But at least we had the workers working. We had a whole lot of other challenges, but um, but the industrial uh, action was uh, the impacts were minimal at that during that period, which was which was a blessing. Um, so in some ways, what we're facing now is more crippling than even even the pandemic. That was Paul Zalai, Director of the Freight and Trade Alliance and Executive Vice President of DP World Oceania. Nikolai Nose has told ABC Radio it wants the federal government to step in and mediate the dispute. The indications are that the actions taken are going to escalate going forward. So um, when we cannot agree and we have this industrial action, there is a broader picture. And, and I think we are asking the government to go in and, and say, look, look, we're looking at this from the side of Australia. And, and we are not just urging you to, to solve it. When you have proven not to be able to solve it, we will go in and play an active part in mediating this. But at this stage, a federal government does intervention doesn't appear likely because this morning uh, a spokesperson for Federal Industrial Relations Minister, Tony Burke, said the government urges all parties to engage with the Fair Work Commission and find a solution in the best interests of everybody involved. And also in a statement, Maritime Union Assistant National Secretary Adrian Evans said... DP World is an incredibly profitable multinational stevedoring outfit. The company already pays its workers 17% less than Patrick Stevedores next door. The MUA has been seeking meaningful good faith bargaining with DP World management since March 2023, but for nine months we have faced nothing but obstruction and delay from management who have sabotaged the negotiation process at every opportunity. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. The number of workers employed in Australia under the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme has quadrupled since 2020, with the workers now making up about 10% of the ag workforce. The Australia Institute says, despite changes in the past 12 months to how the scheme operates, palm workers are still at risk of exploitation and the organisation is calling for major changes to the scheme. Elsie Kennedy reports. There are now 38,000 palm workers in Australia. It's been a rapid expansion in a couple of years, up from about 8,000 workers in 2020. For Pacific Island nations like Vanuatu, the 10,000 workers from that nation in Australia represent about 9% of the working age population of the country. 
So it's really important for Australia's reputation and for our relationship with our neighbours that those workers feel like they're well treated and respected when they're in our country. Over the last year, the federal government has overhauled the scheme, introducing a requirement for workers to be paid the minimum wage, receive a guaranteed weekly take-home pay of $200 and a guaranteed number of hours of work every week. In a new report, the Australia Institute says there is still more to be done. The Palm Visa scheme is growing tremendously quickly. So now is a good time to stop and uh, reassess how the program is running and how it can be improved. That's Dr Morgan Harrington, Research Manager at the Australia Institute. At the moment, Palm Visa holders must obtain written permission to leave their approved employer or to switch between their approved employers. This, coupled with problems ensuring the enforcement of minimum wages and the provision of enough working hours for Palm Visa holders to earn a decent wage, have led to reports of underpayment and of people on Palm Visas running away from their improved employer. If they had the right to change who they work for in a free labour market, this shouldn't be a problem. No domestic worker in Australia is subjected to these kinds of restrictions on movement, which fly in the face of the notion of a free labour market. People invited to work in Australia on a temporary basis should have the same rights as other workers. Some employers might argue that they put out money to, for flights, for example, to bring workers into Australia. If that worker then goes down, the, they find a job at a farm down the road, uh, they're going to lose money at that point. How could you set up the system so that employers wouldn't be losing out if, if a worker uh, changed jobs? Well, it's really important that this scheme is win-win, especially because it's growing so quickly. Under similar temporary labour migration schemes in Canada and the United States, employers and governments are responsible for the cost of flights, not the employee. Right. And so you're proposing essentially that employers pay for, for the flights and accommodation without the expectation of recouping that, that money? Yes, that is what our report calls for, and uh, we see that as an investment in the labour force if it is necessary to bring over such large numbers of temporary workers to Australia. The Australia Institute is also calling for a cap on the amount of money that can be taken out of a worker's pay each week to pay back things like accommodation and transport. Our report calls for deductions for accommodation in particular to be capped at 30% of monthly income. Uh, We also uh, suggest that that workers should not have to repay upfront visa costs and that all workers uh, on these temporary migration schemes should have access to Medicare. It isn't just the Australia Institute talking about palm workers being able to change employer and bringing down the cost of deductions. These issues have also been raised by palm workers themselves. In November, the Australian National University released the results of a survey of 2,000 palm workers. It found between a quarter and a half of workers, depending on which country they came from, would prefer to work for a different employer. And more than 50% of workers believed the deductions taken out of their pay to cover flights, accommodation and transport were excessive. Vanuatu Labor Department Labor Attaché Peter Foliaki Lokatui is the go-to person for more than 10,000 workers from Vanuatu in Australia. He says he believes a lot of workers do not properly understand the contracts they sign before arriving in Australia, and a lot more work needs to be done clarifying those contracts to avoid conflicts. To me, it all comes down to, um, you know, maybe maybe in terms of not, not understanding what the deductions are or it's not stated in, in the payslip, 
and and going with the assumption that someone's taking money that's not accountable. And look, we've seen that happen. And I guess I can I'll share an, an opinion that that you know it's not representative of my government or anyone. It's just my observation. You know, we speak to the workers, and how many of you actually understand the contract? And let's say 10% of people put their hands up. So that leaves the majority um, not in that space. Peter says if the Palm scheme is done right, it is a big opportunity for Vanuatu workers. I look at Palm as as one opportunity for someone who's who's illiterate, who's finished school in grade three, who's never had this 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 chance to, you know, uh, or even even a young person who's spent so much years in school just to go back, you know, return back to Vanuatu and and become, uh, you know, unemployed. This is an opportunity for us to, to you know, build uh, and, and, and become investors. You know, this one one of the the things now that we are we are saying is go, you know, go to Australia or go to New Zealand as a worker, return as an investor. How wonderful is that? That means we can equip the local, um, you know, uh, community uh, to build up capacity so that we can, you know, strengthen, um, you know, ourselves so that we can grow, grow, you know, grow ourselves to the point where we can be self-sufficient. That was Vanuatu Department, uh, Vanuatu Labor Department, Labor Attaché, Peter Foliaki Lokatui, ending that report from Elsie Kennedy. And a spokesperson for the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations said, Palm Scheme workers are required to work for the employer who has been approved as their sponsor. However, there are provisions under the Palm Scheme that allow workers to move to a different approved employer. Additionally, any deductions from workers' wages must comply with the Fair Work Act and employers must ensure a minimum net pay guarantee for workers of at least $200 per week. And they said there are currently no plans to cap the cost of accommodation for Palm Scheme workers. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Thousands of tractors are blocking roads, highways and traffic in Germany as farmers are protesting proposed agricultural subsidy cuts. The cuts are part of the German government's 2024 budget plans and include proposed changes to diesel taxes and vehicle tax exemptions for farmers. Daniel Jung is a young vegetable farmer near Stuttgart in southern Germany and a board member of the Heilbronn Ludwigsburg District Farmers Association. He says farmers are angry and change is needed. Farmers are currently in the street protesting because our government, they have the highest tax income since the history in Germany, but on the other hand, also the highest cash outcome in our government. That's why they have a lack of cash and now they are searching for some opportunities to fix that holes in their household plan and now they had the, the idea to remove some subsidies, for example, for fuel for their farmers. And also the, the tax for the tractors was in the past for free. And now they want to change it to uh, every truck, every car. So we, we, we should also start to go pay taxes for that. Now, with those proposed subsidies for farmers, what would they mean for you as a farmer if they were to come in play? For me as a farmer, it would be a between 50,000 and 80,000 euros per year less income. And that's a huge amount for me and my family. And not only for me, also for the, all the other farmers. They are really angry at the moment because they, yesterday they decided to quit the subsidy for the fuel, not 
from today to tomorrow in some steps, but that's why the farmers are getting angry now. And but I think yesterday was a big protest action in, uh, in the whole Germany, and there were about 100,000 tractors on the streets. They blocked the highway, for example, or the big cities. How did the public and the government react to those protests? The public reacted with good feelings and they they were happy <laughs> that the farmers are on the street, really, and they supported us. But the government in Berlin, they said, nothing will change. It's our plans. We quit these subsidies and it doesn't matter what you're doing on the streets. But uh, on the other hand, we had some politicals yesterday from, uh, for example, Rheinland-Pfalz. That's the area in Germany. There, the, the president there of this area Uh, she told also, hey, stop the quitting, let it, let the old system run and search for another opportunities to, fi to find some money. Now, the government did make some concessions and instead of cutting subsidies immediately, for example, on fuel, they now slowly phase it out and it, there will be no more subsidies by 2026. Given that concession, how did farmers feel about that? They're feeling really angry. To be honest, really, really angry because the subsidy for the fuel, for example, is something that everyone has to pay. Or when, you, when you go to a gas station and fill up your, your tractor or truck or car, you have to pay the normal price on the fuel station. And the farmers get in Germany 21.48 cents per liter back because this is the tax to uh, rebuild and renew the streets and the highway. And with this reason, uh, the farmers get it back because they don't use the highway or the streets so much. Their tractor normally drives on the field and don't destroy some streets. That's the reason why they found it in the past and how the farmers getting really angry because they quit it. Given the cuts in subsidies by the government, what does that mean for consumers buying your agricultural product and also for produce that might be imported to Germany? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question because for me at, at my farm with the vegetables, I can, I can po postpone this amount to the customer I have to. But my other colleagues, for example, a typical grain farmer or a cattle farmer, they are delivery or they, they supply some big companies or directly to the, to the customer in the supermarket, and then they don't have that power to uh, enlarge the prices so easily. So uh, they have to pay it by their own. So this is some money they're missing at the end of the year. Given those protests, it's not that common in Germany and in agriculture that you see that many farmers out on the streets. Is there no. any memory that you have that protests like these happened? No. I can, in my mind, we had a few years ago some protests with smaller groups of farmers, but not, not that numbers of farmers or tractors on the street like we have. It's also caused by some other regulations that passed. For example, last year in 2023, we get a new regulation uh, from the government. For example, in this sheet, they write down when we have to plow our soil or when, when we have to seed our soil. And this is something I think that these subsidies now or that this action, what they did now with the subsidies, it was only uh, one thing too much. And now all the farmers are really angry. Given those regulations that you just mentioned in regards to when you can plow your soil and when you can seed, can you explain that a little bit further, what those regulations meant for you as a farmer? For example, my farm is in a really 
hilly landscape. So we, we're fighting with erosion, mainly of, uh, with water erosion in our fields. And the government now had a new computer system. In this system, every ground, every field is in that system and it's calculated with a big database. This program says, okay, you have to cultivate that soil with, with a disc or blow that field in this direction, but the other direction isn't allowed. Or after blowing, you have to seed directly some, some winter wheat or stuff like that, but no plant with a row wide higher than 45 centimeters. Yeah, really weird. Given those protests, what are farmers aiming to achieve? We're aiming to achieve that all the subsidy cutting stops immediately. And yeah, that's the main part. And I think all the other the other reasons why they're protesting, this is something on the, the level of uh, Europe. We, we can't influence that so much like we want to. That was Daniel Jung, vegetable farmer and a board member of the Heilbronn Ludwigsburg District Farmers Association in southern Germany, speaking with our reporter Jessica Schremer. And the ABC has contacted the German government for a response. Be interested to get your perspective on what is playing out over there in Germany on the other side of the world. You can get in touch on the text line 0467 842 722. Just gone 12.30 now, though, so let's head off to today's Rural News with Emma Field. G'day, Angus. A Wurunin South fruit grower in the state's northwest and a Swan Hill labour hire company have been charged by WorkSafe after a worker died almost two years ago after they fell from a moving trailer. Farming company Kutri Fruit faces five charges under the Occupational Health and Safety Act for allegedly failing to ensure, as far as reasonably practical, people other than employees were not exposed to health and safety risks. While labour hire company AH Vision faces two charges relating to the death of a 70-year-old worker who suffered a fatal head injury after he fell from a trailer being towed by a tractor on a farm in January 2022. To Northern Australia now, where parts of WA are very, very dry. Anna Plains cattle station just south of Broome in the Kimberley region of Western Australia is the driest it's been in a decade. Owner David Stote says it's been almost a year since the station had its last big rain event and he's even started to offload cattle to cope with the conditions, which is pretty unusual for this time of year. It's very dry, Belinda. Unfortunately, normally we'd expect green grass around the place, but uh, not not this year. It's um, it's very dry, it's, uh, which has been exacerbated by the bushfires we had late last year. So, yeah, any time soon would be good to get a, a drink. It just removes a lot of pasture, and which always gives you a bit of a backup. So, uh, yeah, that that's exacerbated the dry conditions here and in for a, a lot of the Kimberley, I think. Yeah, and how much of the property was affected by those fires? Uh, I think it was around, uh, you know, 100,000 hectares in all, maybe a bit less, but, you know, a significant amount of the property. And still in WA, where the local sheep industry is anxiously waiting for the Federal Agriculture Minister's response to the panel's report on the phase-out of the live sheep export trade. The panel provided its report with advice and recommendations to Murray Watt on the 25th of October, so he's had it for close to three months. Director of the Livestock Collective, Stephen Bolt, says the whole industry is nervously waiting on the Agriculture Minister's response. For growers and, and the wider sheep industry, it's... You know, it's concerning how long it's taking to um, to release this report. 
because, you know, the whole industry is sort of in limbo at the moment because of the complexity uh, of the supply chain and the, the, the wider impact that this will, any decision will have on our industry. I'm not surprised that it's taking uh, a long time to deliver the report. To some international news now. The Australian government has sent 200,000 canine rabies vaccines to our small northern neighbour, Timor-Leste, to help combat the fatal viral disease found in dogs. Australia and Timor-Leste are free from rabies. However, it's present in parts of Indonesia, including in West Timor, which shares a land border with East Timor. Currently, about 59,000 people die each year from the disease, which is preventable by vaccination. Department of Agriculture Deputy Chief Veterinary Officer Dr Jennifer Davis says it's the latest in a long-running biosecurity partnership with Timor-Leste. Both Australia and Timor-Leste are free from dog-mediated rabies. We're some of the few countries in the world that do remain free of rabies. Uh, It's present in parts of Indonesia, um, including Bali, and earlier in 2023, uh, it was detected in West Timor for the first time. Um, So that is the other half of the Timor Island. The most effective way of preventing rabies in humans is vaccination of dogs. Um, And we also have technical staff in country supporting the rollout of a canine rabies vaccination campaign. And finally, the Shire Mayor of Parks has joined hundreds of Elvis Presley fans and impersonators in Sydney ahead of their journey to the annual Elvis Festival in the state's central west. The express train left Central Station today to make its way to Parks for the four-day festival. Presley's famous tune, Jailhouse Rock, is this year's theme. Parks Mayor Neil Westcott dressed up for the occasion in true Elvis glamour and he says the event is more than just a tourist boost. I've been involved with it for 20 odd years and it just continues to grow and grow. For the for Parks, the Shire and the, and the surrounding region, it's just a massive boost to them economically and I just think the whole, the whole mental health side of it, it's just a, a wonderful time of uh, throw away your inhibitions and just uh, enjoy, have fun. And Angus, it sounds like the sideburns and the blue suede shoes are out in force. I hope they have fun. And that's rural news for today. I'm sure they're having fun. Thanks for that, Emma. Emma Field there with Rural News. Let's get head to the Bureau now. Senior forecaster Stephanie Miles is on the line. Afternoon, Stephanie. Hi, Angus. How are you? Well, I'm sad I'm missing out on the Elvis impersonation uh, <laughs> festival. But in any case, Stephanie, a pretty reasonably warm day around the state in Victoria today. Yeah, it is. It's looking a lot more settled around the state today. We've got a lot of sunshine as well. A little bit cloudy still over Gippsland, but the cloud is starting to disappear. So look, it's a nice, beautiful sunshine day out there at the moment. And we are getting temperatures heading into the mid-20s to the high 30s today as well. So a warm day around the state. Now into tomorrow, we will have very similar conditions in terms of the temperature and some sunshine as well. However, we do have a bit of a trough that's deepening over the central parts. Going to be driving a couple of uh, showery and thunderstorm activity mainly in our north, central and eastern parts of the state uh, tomorrow. But then that trough will start to move eastwards overnight and we will get another ridge building over the state on Saturday. So some more settled weather, weather continuing over the weekend. We will have a couple of showers on and south of the ranges with that ridge, but yeah, mostly settled conditions from Saturday, Sunday onwards and continuing into Monday as well, Angus. So we'll have probably our last settled day before potential rainfall coming from about Tuesday onwards. 
So early days, I know, Stephanie, but tell me what, what that rain is looking like at this stage. Honestly, it's just looking not certain at all. <laughs> at the moment, we're kind of considering one model is telling us that there could be a nice low with a, a bit of a trough kind of moving over the state on Tuesday, another one saying it's you know coming through on Wednesday, whereas 24 hours ago, they were telling us that it was coming through on Thursday and mostly affecting Tasmania. So very uncertain at the moment, unfortunately. And just sort of um, from a, a gut feel perspective, with with the rain that we've been having and these rain events continually exceeding the forecast, I guess people might hear hear that word uncertainty and thinks and think, well, perhaps there is going to be a, a bit of rain. Yeah, no, and that's a very fair thought as well. To like at the moment, the amount of rainfall that we're expecting. I'm really even hesitant to say any amount of numbers because there's such a difference in the model guidance of what we're looking at. So I really want to be, you know, conservative and make sure that, you know, sensitive as well around those rainfall totals. Like I said, it could be Tuesday, Wednesday, but then, you know, 24 hours ago, most of that rainfall was hitting Tasmania as well. So I don't really have a gut feel, unfortunately, and I wish that I could tell you, just, you know, given all of the communities out there that are suffering from the rainfall that we just had, but I think this is a watch, watch this space kind of situation. No worries, we will watch this space. And just, Stephanie, you mentioned there the rain we've been having and uh, uh, river levels now, I think it's just the the uh, moderate flood warning for the Goulburn River and then all other waterways are only back to, to minor flood warning. Absolutely, you're spot on. We do have... A couple of minor flood warnings, but like you said, the worst of what we've got at the moment is the moderate flood warning for the Goulburn River. So the floodwaters have peaked at... Um, I'm not even sure how to say it. Murchison, I think Spot is on. how you pronounce it. <laughs> so they're peaking there today and then they'll head downstream to Shepherd. And they have actually been, uh, our flood team have actually downgraded our warning at the moment. We're not expecting moderate flood levels at Shepherd and just a high minor for now. And that will be possibly from Friday onwards. So that's the one to keep an eye on as well. But yeah, look, there is a couple of miners out there too at the moment, Angus. And as you mentioned before, Stephanie, yeah, pretty, pretty warm day tomorrow, particularly in the northwest. Yeah, very warm. I think Majuro is getting up to about 38 degrees tomorrow. Uh, you know, a couple of places on south of the ranges, only probably the mid-20s, but yeah, the warmest parts will be in the northern parts of the state. We're heading to the early to mid-30s around, you know, anywhere from the northwest to the northeast. And we've had, along with the rain, we've had some pretty steamy, humid weather. That looks like it might be continuing. Tomorrow, definitely. Very on the eastern parts of the trough, it's kind of through the central parts of the state. That'll feel quite warm and humid, uh, mostly in those areas, and that's the areas that we're expecting those thunderstorms. The humid conditions drive the instability, but by best Saturday onwards, hopefully those humid conditions definitely won't be felt anymore. Welcome news. Thanks, Stephanie. <laughs> Thanks, Angus. Enjoy your afternoon. You too. Stephanie Miles there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau. Quick look at the text line before we move on. When on the Country Hour, and Steve says, why is the Country Hour covering an ag issue in Europe that is not relevant to Australian farmers? Plenty of material to cover here, says Steve. We heard earlier about those widespread uh, farmer protests against cuts to ag subsidies in Germany. Uh, I guess, Steve, we thought our listeners might be interested. Clearly, you're not, but that's okay. Different people interested in different things and happy to, as well, get from our listeners, including yourself, suggestions about what you would like to hear on your country. Oh, you can get in touch on the text line, 0467 842 722. 
On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Back on those rain events now because two Gippsland beef producers say they've been hit with successive flooding events in recent months, much worse than they've ever experienced. In the hills between the Gippsland coast and the Latrobe Valley, Damien and Angela Stock farm about 100 hectares at Woodside North. Rural reporter Fiona Broom headed out to have a look at their place. So this is the very top end of our property as it, as it goes up the creek line and this is where everything starts. So basically once the creek breaks its bank up here, it takes all the fences, takes any debris through it and just keeps breaking fences all the way down the creek line. And then it ends up... Hi, I'm Damien Stock. I'm a farmer at Woodside North here in Gippsland. And I'm Angela Stock, Damien's partner, and I'm also a farmer <laughs> here at Woodside. Well, we're looking at the overflowing Bruthen Creek that runs through our property. And in the last three or four weeks, it's basically flooded many of our paddocks and just destroyed fence lines, uh, moved heavy troughs in its wake, uh, left debris six feet up into trees and just caused absolute destruction throughout the whole property. It's actually moving pretty quickly through here, but this is not the creek, right? No, what we're looking at at the moment is one of our paddocks that we should have cattle grazing in. And every time we get any sort of uh, water event between here and Carajung up in the Streslecky Ranges, we just lose our paddocks. It just overflows the creek line so quickly that we have no way to do anything except just sit here and watch. We've also lost our major uh, feed for the year because our two hay paddocks, one of which has been totally destroyed, we may get some silage out of it, um, just depending upon whether we get any more rain events or whether we get enough heat into it to, to dry it out enough. Um, so, you know, we, we're going to be looking at thousands of dollars of uh, purchases of hay later in the year when we, you know, when we run out. That's our biggest issue. You know, we can always repair damaged fences, you know. Speaking of fences, we're standing at a fence that's not looking in great shape. Is this going to need some work? Uh, yeah, so this fence line we repaired only about four days ago and uh, what followed then was another flood and it just took it all out again. Unfortunately, uh, big troughs when they get moved around by floodwaters, they don't respect where fences are and they just knock them out in their, in their path. Is this the first time you've had to repair the fences this season? Uh, no. no, this is this. We basically spent two weeks fixing them. The first time, our first flood just well, before Christmas. We had this is the third one. We had a flood early. That's right. December, so early December, we had our first flood. Fixed the fences that did get damaged, but it wasn't as bad. But the the flood that we had Christmas night, Boxing Day morning, just took everything in its wake. As you can see, the creek is low here, but we have high paddocks and the cattle are sensible enough to to head for high ground. But we've got calves and. They get separated, so it's always it's a worry. Um, yeah, so the neighbours were looking after it. Then they went back to their place, and they have complete devastation over there as well. Their place is just trashed. We know friends that are going to take long service leave so they can help their families to, to rebuild, rebuild all their fences, and that's just, it's just devastating, you know. It impacts everyone then, so can't, that inc- doesn't, you know help the productivity for those people having to leave work to come back and work on on farm because farms aren't paying enough to be able to support too many people but they still need all the bodies thrown at it to 
get fences back. You know, we had cattle roaming up into the state forest. Yeah, All right, yeah. and can't have that. You know, it's dangerous. So we had to go up walking, traipsing through the state forest to try to find our cattle to get them back into our into our paddocks. And we still don't have boundary fences up there. We we, we secured this part of the property, um, but we don't have boundary fences up there, so we can't use all our all our paddocks. We have to go and find the fences there somewhere in the middle of the paddock with all the trees and logs and whatever that have come down. So <laughs> it sort of does your head in. It's quite depressing. Damien and Angela Stock speaking there with Fiona Broom on their farm at Woodside North in Gippsland. A couple of people on the text line saying they were interested to hear that story about those farmer protests in Germany. Tony says, Hi Angus, I was interested in the Germany story. And Meryl at Oyen just called to say we're part of a global farming community and it is important to keep in touch with what is happening with our farming counterparts around the world. 0467842722 is the text line. Let's talk grain harvest now because for those grain growers still harvesting, progress has been slow with the rain since Christmas. Tim Reithus farms near Horsham and still had 400 hectares of go to go after the rain at the weekend. I spoke to him earlier in the week about what has been a very wet and frustrating harvest. 50 to 75 mil seems to be where we're at from this uh, last rain event. So it's just getting a decent drink every time. And I'm just staggered that we've had so many 25 mil plus events. I mean, they're usually rare during the year and we've had them nearly every single time uh, over harvest, which has been quite unusual. And for you, you've still got some harvest to run? Yeah, we're down to our last wheat paddocks. We've got three wheat paddocks, probably 400 hectares to go. So a few more days uh, would wrap it up. But uh, with these wet conditions, it's just going to make it a slow, drawn-out last few days, I think. And I imagine, Tim, that after we had a pretty good uh, run at things in in the early stages of harvest with no rain, but I imagine since then it's been a pretty frustrating sort of stop-start process. Yeah, and it's also been tricky mentally as well, you know, because you get into the harvest mode and you absolutely start pulling those hours and getting that crop off and then you have a break and then you've got to get back into it and getting back into that mode, you know, you're getting you're, you're race fit and then you lose your fitness and you've got to get mentally prepared to get back into it again. So it's just a drag as well. It's just uh, you want to do other things. We've got summer spraying to happen at the same time now. That's the, the plant growth has just been huge in the weeds. And there's all the other jobs you want to do in January, you know, wheel track renovating, gypsum spreading, all these sort of things. So it's plenty to do and it'd be just nice to finish the harvesting step. And I imagine, Tim, that the idea is to wrap up the job so that you can can get a break before you're into sowing again. I've been reminded many times by my kids, but we have to be finished in a week. So uh, we'll see how we go. That's the plan. And we've got a holiday book. So my wife cleverly booked it towards the end of January and I thought I was going to be well, well finished by then, but yeah, it continues to drag on, but that's what happens. And uh, I guess the good news is we're really setting ourselves up for a good 2024. And we, hopefully no more rain on the horizon, but with the nature of the, the climate and the, the way it feels at the moment in the atmosphere, do you, would you not be surprised if we did get more rain? I would not doubt it at all. I mean, uh, the way the forecasts are running at the moment, uh, it's uh, unusual in that we seems to be getting delivered the higher number in the uh, predicted range every time, or even more than what they predicted. So yes, uh, high numbers. I imagine that it'll change at some point and we'll go through a bit of a dry spell. Um, so I think we'll be charging our moisture banks, but the question is if it stops raining this month, does it does it rain again in April or is it gonna rain in June? 
when's the break going to be? Because we'll have stored moisture, but can we get our crop out the ground? Or is it going to rain all the way through to seeding and give us an absolute rotten seeding time as well in wet conditions? So um, we don't know, but um, the good news is it's money in mud. So uh, it's better to have it wet than uh, than not. So give me uh, give me about 10 days of dry weather just to wrap up our harvest and then it can start raining again. I'm not too fussed. And Tim, that, that wheat that you've still got to run, what's what's the quality like after having had all that rain on it? Yeah, not great. Um, I hope there's some dairy farmers out there rubbing their hands in glee. Um, there's going to be plenty of feed wheat out there. Anything that was sort of post-Christmas has been downgraded. Uh, it's not much coming through that's on grade uh, for bread wheat at that point. So yeah, all feed grade. So there's been a bit of a discount in price on that, which is disappointing, but that's, that's what happens. And you've got, you've got high capacity machines for when you do get rolling for harvest, but is it still going to be a pretty slow process with uh, uh, limited work hours with the moisture? And I'm imagining some of that's probably laying on the ground and you've got to go pretty slow to, to try and pick it all up. Yeah, spot on. It's a lot of crawling around with the harvester with the um, with the amount of straw we're processing. Everything gets lodged. They're high-yielding crops, uh, and they're, they're starting to lodge just from sitting there so long. So, uh, yeah, we're cutting them down short. Um, that's going to create problems with seeding too for the amount of residue there. But fortunately, the residue is breaking up quite a lot because it's so dry and ripe. Oh, it's not dry, but it's ripe. So it's just uh, breaking right up to nothing. So hopefully that's not going to cause a seeding issue. Usually that does when we cut too short. Um, but yeah, I think I think um, it, it's just going to be a slow drag. And having the the larger machines, we've got the John Deere X9s this year, and they've been really good at processing those uh, large straw um, quantities. So we're still going along at a reasonable rate. It's actually what's been surprising is getting the trucks out of the paddock. I mean, last year was a wet harvest, and uh, we kind of did better with the trucks than this year. This year, the trucks are cutting up the paddock something pretty bad just from the rain we've been getting during harvest. So picking places we can put our bins to get trucks in and out the paddock more than once has been important. And Tim, those those X9s, other uh, top-end machines, obviously come with a massive price tag, but but for yourself, when you, when you have got limited opportunities in between rains to harvest, is it a, a worthy investment? Oh, 100%. I mean, we've seen last year we had uh, one of the large X9s versus the uh, S780, which is the standard size um, John Deere. And and in any paddock, they were at least 50%, if not twice the capacity of that machine. So they might be worth 50% more than a standard machine, but uh, they're giving you at least that. And they're more fuel efficient. So it's been quite staggering how how good they've been. And um, yeah, I'm a big advocate, big fan of them. John Deere have done a really good job with the machine they've put together. It sort of exceeded my expectations. So yeah, it's it's um, what you get out of it, not what you're paying. You, as long as it pays for itself, it's it's well worth the investment. And Tim, once harvest does wrap up and you reflect back on yields, tonnages, quality, profit margins, all of those things, how will it uh, stack up? I think uh, a lot of farmers have been very happy this year. So um, I'm still waiting for that Yahtzee year, Yahtzee the dice game, where we get every crop performs at its peak. Um, this year for us, lentils were a little bit subpar, but hay was fantastic. Uh, we had dry period when we were cutting hay and baling hay. And uh, wheat, canola and barley have all been very good. So um, there's been some really good results in that, but then it'd be just nice to get that last one sorted out. So I think farmers will be looking at potentially better returns than last year. Price is probably not quite as strong, but yields have been surprisingly high, and particularly wheat and canola. And just finally, Tim, I've, I've asked this of others as well, but uh, of, of course, no reason why we can't have multiple wet years in a row, but are people sort of shaking their heads in bewilderment to think that Yet again, we're, we're having such wet conditions through harvest? Through harvest, yes. I think that's a bit unusual, but I don't necessarily think they're 
they're worried about the wet conditions. Obviously, it's an opportunity, but I mean, we went through that millennial drought and we're like, what's going on here? So we, we can have five bad years in a row. Why can't we have five good ones? So I think people are playing the cards that are dealt on the table. And um, at the moment, we're going to have stored moisture. So you're going to have to assume you're going to be planning for success this year. So even if it dries up, it almost certainly will have a dry period some point during the year. Question is when? Last year, it was in spring, but the stored moisture carried us through. Is that going to happen again? good chance. So um, I think it'll be interesting to see what, how the year pays out. But I think with that stored moisture, farms will be pretty confident. That was Horsham grain grower Tim Rethus on the text line. This person says, Angus, with woke state and federal Labor governments in control, our beautiful country is being held to ransom by the unions. And this person says, regarding the German ag story and their government not subsidising fuel, it is a relevant subject as the possibility of it happening here is a probability as agriculture turns green. 0467842722, the text line. But let's stick with the impact of the rain now, this time in the far east of the state at Lock End, which is on the Snowy River near Numerella and Orbost. It's been a topsy-turvy season for farmers in that part of the world, and the rain is more than welcome. Orbost received just 45 millimetres in winter last year, then almost 200 mils fell in December. Dairy farmer Blair Austin says he couldn't be happier. We've had a couple of rain events um, down here. Uh, we had a, had, a, had a fairly dry period and then obviously a lot of rain in the first, in the first one. And then um, sort of within the, last, within the last three weeks, we've sort of just had storm events and um, sort of seems to be back to being old school all us, to be honest. Well, that must be a good feeling. So, no, it's good. It's um, it's making um, farming a bit easier this year, anyway, considering that we were um, that we were all sort of bracing for having drought, I suppose. And what sort of property do you run out there? Uh, we're a dairy farm, running running on um, about four hundred and fifty acres, milking about three hundred cows. Has the rain caused any problems for your dairy operation? Uh, no issues. So um, we've been we've been pretty lucky. So. Um, we're sort of a, a bit away from the river and stuff and um, just a little bit of low, like bit of drainage, um, bit, bit of the drains um, overflowing and stuff, but nothing major. And plenty of feed? Plenty of feed. So we've, we've, um, we sort of stocked up on silage early on. Like we did have, a, did have a spell through the spring that was pretty dry, so we sort of started looking, for, um, looking to purchase silage in, which we did. And, um, yeah, we've, we've put in some maize as well. We've got 12 hectares of maize in just to sort of cover out, cover us as well. But, um, yeah, we've hardly fed any silage, so we've got, got a mountain of silage as well, so, which is great. And how's the maize looking? Oh, looking good. So the, the way the humidity and the, and, the, and the weather's been, it's been good, but um, obviously making hay has been a bit of an issue, like just with the humid, humid conditions. Were you able to cut silage this year or...? Yeah, season. yeah, we've cut we've cut plenty of silage, so it's been good. So we sort of we even cut silage last week, which is sort of oh, it's unheard of for me. I've never done silage that this late in the season. Um, it's still raining now. You've had some rain this morning. What, yeah, what does yeah, that mean, so and how are you feeling about that? Oh, pretty pretty good because it means I don't have to irrigate the maize again. So for another for another week, it's been good. I think they they had forecasted for us ten to twenty mils today, maybe. So yeah, I don't know. We've probably had. I don't know, five or six mils so far, I suppose. We're pretty good. So, yeah, just um, just sort of the season's sort of been a bit of a 
bit of a shock to the system, I suppose, considering what we were all sort of being told early on. And yeah, it's sort of uh, yeah, it's sort of gone from one thing to another. At the minute, just seems spring just seems to be keep keep coming. And if it does dry out from now on in, do you feel good that you've got some silage in store? Oh yeah, like we're in a good position. So um, yeah, it's sort of we've we've got autumn cows just about to go out in the next week, and um, yeah, sort of considering whether we whether we try and look at getting some more if it's going to sort of stay like this. And I understand you've just bought uh, another block of land or another bit of farming land. Um, yeah. Does that mean you're pretty confident about the industry? Yeah, yeah. So no, I think I think it's in a we're in a good spot. So at the minute, and um, yeah, like um, I think. I, I sort of think with supply and demand issues, I think it'll 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 track pretty well for the next couple of years as well. I think that was Lock End Dairy Farmer Blair Austin speaking to Emma Field and just highlighting how, yes, the rain it always means different things for different people, doesn't it? Sometimes welcome, sometimes not. Market shortly, but on the text line, Mary at Neerham says Country Hour coverage of a wide range of ag topics and issues is and should be important to all rural producers. Thank you. The German standoff with farmers regarding loss of subsidies is relevant compared with questions of any subsidies here. Australian trade in and out emphasises how small the world is. It's not good for any farmer to be small-minded with eyes only turned to local matters. Thanks for your text there, Mary. Market time now, and just the one market report today, Wagga Lambs with Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. There was a significant upswing in lamb and sheep numbers, totalling 52,000 lambs and 15,000 sheep, fuelled by a price surge of the previous sale. Vendors were well rewarded as prices saw an increase ranging from $7 to $11. The recent rainfall did serve as motivation for restockers and feedlots, resulting in a substantial rise in rates for store lambs of $10 to $15 for the better types. Heavy lambs experienced robust demand, drawing a considerable number of buyers and driving up by $10 peaking at 2.94 and averaging 760 cents. Trade lambs displayed varying price trends at times but generally held firm with most averaging around 800 cents. Lambs weighing 21 to 24 sold from 160 to 194. Store lambs showing weight and frame commanded prices ranging from 128 to 162. Merino lambs fetched prices ranging from 58 to 178. Hoggets met strong demand with merino portions selling at 108 to 146 and crossbreds were sold within a range of 126 to 164. With the sheep yet to be sold, there's a two-hour break. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Almost out of time, but on the text line, uh, this person reminding us that south of Ararat, there are still lots of crops to be harvested. Hopefully the rain and humidity will not return. Correct. We, we can get sucked into talking about uh, harvest wrapping up, but certainly in that southwest zone, there is still plenty to go. Uh, thanks for listening today. Remember the website, abc.net.au slash rural. News time now. It's one o'clock.